need to ask ourselves, how prepared are we for natural disasters and other dangers? We need to be prepared for common dangers. Let's turn to Proverbs, the 22nd chapter, Proverbs 22. This is repeated, so God emphasizes this principle, one that we've emphasized before, but one we need to practice We need to foresee the dangers that lie ahead and prepare for them. Proverbs 22 and verse 3. A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. That's repeated in Proverbs 27 and verse 12. Those who are prepared for upsets and dangers can handle the stress much better. But today, millions of Americans are under stress. A recent American Psychological Association survey reported that stress levels have risen for 50% of Americans in the last five years, and one-third report extreme stress in their lives. Dr. Russ Newman, APA Executive Director for Professional Practice, says 75% of those responding to an online questionnaire pointed to work and financial difficulties as the main stressors in their lives. Other stress factors included workload, children, low salaries, work, family balance, and lack of opportunities for advancement at work. An equal number said they experienced headaches, fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, and muscle tension because of stress. More than half said stress was causing friction in their relations with family, friends, and associates. Many admitted indulging in damaging behaviors such as excessive alcohol consumption, intake of high-sugar junk food, and tobacco use because of high stress. These and other stress-induced bad habits contributed to respondents' high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and other disorders, which in turn led to an even greater levels of stress. APA's Newman said people should figure out what causes their stress as a first step toward dealing with it. Many survey respondents credited reading, music, exercise, and time spent with family as stress reducers. 34% said prayer also eased their stress. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 31 and 32, Therefore, do not worry, he said saying, What shall we eat, or drink, or where? For your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. So millions of Americans are expressing extreme stress, experiencing that. In June 2005, it was reported by the Archives of General Psychiatry that 40 million Americans, ages 18 and older, about 18.1% of people in this age group in a given year, have an anxiety disorder. This is up from 19 million uh, three years earlier. Anxiety disorders frequently co-occur with depressive disorders or substance abuse. Most people with one anxiety disorder have another anxiety disorder. Nearly three-quarters of those with anxiety disorders will have their first episode by age 21 and a half. So, brethren, in this 21st century, we will face and are facing challenges, stresses, turmoil, 
economic and environmental dangers. So can we meet that challenge? Let's turn to Luke, the 8th chapter, Luke 8. Jesus warned us here in the parable of the sower that we need to be focused. There are those that hear the word, but that word is smothered, or it doesn't find good ground. Luke, the 8th chapter, in the parable of the sower. Luke 8. And in verse 9, his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said unto you, It is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. So perhaps this is a hint of how we can overcome our stresses and survive stress. Those by the wayside are they that hear, that then comes the devil, takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they that hear the word, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe and in a time of temptation fall away. Could that be any one of us? And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart have heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So the cares and the distractions of life can render us unfruitful, unprofitable servants. But what stresses cause you pain, headache, and frustration. Just the stress of everyday life can kill us. We commute in congested traffic. We sometimes interact in the world with carnal argumentative people. We face financial and social and personal and job-related problems. And then we add to those stresses the frightening terrors that will be attacking and have attacked our cities and nations, and then add to that the natural disasters of firestorms, earthquakes, tsunamis, drought, and hurricanes. So, brethren, how are you coping with stress? Are you dealing with stress? Are you surviving the daily stresses of the 21st century? I think we all understand that God has given us a life, a way of life, and a spiritual power to overcome the stresses of life. The title of the sermon today is How to Survive Stress, or an alternate title, Turn Stress to Success. So let's see some of the kinds of challenges we face and how to meet those stresses and strains. As I mentioned earlier, as we face natural disasters, the wildfires destroyed more than 100,000 acres in the San Diego County. The gale force winds created infernos, and I think most of you have seen them, on television or in your newspapers. The fires were so destructive that the Charlotte Observer had as its headline, it was like Armageddon. And if you saw, if you were anywhere near it, you would have been frightened. Mr. Meredith wrote in the January, February 2005 Tomorrow's World magazine in an article, Are You Prepared? So I want to challenge all of you today with that question. Are you prepared? That's one of the questions. He wrote, quote, if we are truly Bible-believing Christians, we need to prepare for these situations. We are reminded of the old adage, God helps those who help themselves. 
Many examples indicate that although God will often intervene supernaturally to deliver us, he expects us to use wisdom and do our part to protect ourselves. So what Bible examples can you think of that preparation was the key to help millions avoid famine? We won't turn there, but Genesis 41, verse 28, when Joseph revealed to Pharaoh that there were going to be seven years of famine, how would they prepare for it? Genesis 41:28 says, This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. So Pharaoh had dreamed about the cows and the ears of corn, and Joseph told, told Pharaoh to prepare seven years for that famine. Will we take a day? Will we take a week? Will we take a month to prepare for the dangers that we will be facing soon? Turn to Proverbs, the 30th chapter, Proverbs 30 and verse 25. Proverbs 30 and verse 25. My wife uh, did call our former landlord and left a voicemail. We've not heard back from them, but just to see those individuals who had just escaped with their lives. You think of uh, some of the expression in the Old Testament where God said, your life will be a prey to you. In other words, you're going to escape all right, but your life is the only thing you're going to escape with. And we need to be prepared to examine ourselves. What are our priorities? Do we have other gods before the true gods? Are we preparing? When I mentioned that to my wife about preparing and Joseph's example, she said, God has shown us what lies ahead. Are we preparing? So we have to examine ourselves and make sure that we're doing our part. Proverbs 30 and verse 25. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. They prepare their food. So they are ready for what will come in the wintertime. In that same Tomorrow's World article by Dr. Meredith, Are You Prepared? January, February 2005, he wrote, So we must each examine our own situation to determine what action we should take. Are we living in a low-lying coastal area where we may be in danger at a time of increasing hurricanes, tsunamis, or similar natural disasters? Do we have at least a week's supply of emergency food and water, flashlight batteries, a first aid kit, a battery-powered radio, prescription medications, and other essential items? Have we read the instructions from our nation or region about how to prepare for such emergencies as hurricanes, earthquakes, or terrorist attacks? So I won't uh, embarrass all of you, but I will ask one question. How many of you feel that you have at least a week's supply of food and water? Just that amount. Good. Okay. It looks like about uh, 53 and two-thirds percent. Very good. I think we can improve on that. But uh, nonetheless, um, we need to be prepared. Let's look at Luke, the 12th chapter, again on preparation. Luke, the 12th chapter. It's a general principle here in preparation that we need to be so doing the work, regardless of the turmoil and the stresses and the disasters that may surround us. Luke, the 12th chapter, and 
in verse 43. Uh, Jesus said, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But and if that servant says in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, well, we don't need to prepare for any disasters or anything, and shall begin to beat the men, servants, and maidservants, and to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him as a portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and note this, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. You can survive the stress and the trauma of natural and man-made disasters if you prepare. Let's turn to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. Was she afraid? Was she under stress? Or did she prepare for dangers or challenges ahead? Proverbs, the 31st chapter. Let's start in uh, verse 19. She lays her hands to the spindle and her hands to the distaff. In other words, she's sewing. She's uh, fabricating clothing. She stretches out her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. Notice verse 21, she is not afraid. Are some of you ladies nervous, worried? She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. So the virtuous woman sees the challenge of cold weather ahead. She faces the challenge and she prepares for it. She is not afraid of the snow. She will not be stressed by the problem. You can survive the stress of natural and man-made disasters by being prepared. Another area of challenge is that of financial troubles. Can you survive the stress of financial troubles? Recently, Congress raised the national debt limit. As of uh, September 28th, Dateline Washington from the Wall Street Journal Online, quote, the Senate gave final congressional approval to an $850 billion increase in the public debt, the fifth such adjustment under President Bush, and one reflecting the rising cost of the war in Iraq. Adopted 53 to 42, the revised $9.815 trillion ceiling is intended to give the Treasury enough borrowing power to manage through the end of Mr. Bush's presidency and on into 2009. Well, I'm glad it's going to last that long. It represents an almost $4 trillion increase from the statutory debt limit when Mr. Bush took office in 2001. So the dollar continues to weaken. The Canadian dollar used to be about 40% less in value than the U.S. dollar, and now it's about equal. The euro just recently set a new record in its value against the dollar. We as a nation do not live within our means. Do we as families live within our means? I remember one time as a uh, student visiting a uh, minister out in the field. He was a young man, just uh, graduated the year before. 
and he had a limited means, but he had a budget. And it was interesting to help me and my wife later on realize that he budgeted $2.43 for a weekly newspaper. And you think, well, I have so many, <laughs> as time goes on, I have so many things to budget for, I don't have room in my budget for it. But he had a discipline, and that discipline helped me and my wife later on uh, in our first and second years of marriage to be more disciplined in our budgeting. He budgeted $2, as I think it was, $2.43 a week for newspapers because that was important to him to keep up with what was going on in the world. Then, of course, Dr. Winnale's sermon on biblical economics a couple weeks ago should help all of us practice God's way of financial management. When one fails to manage properly, he can get himself into financial trouble or the whole family into trouble. Let's turn to Proverbs 6, chapter, Proverbs 6. And I know I've been in trouble in various circumstances, whether it was behind in academic assignments or other kinds of assignments, and this proverb uh, helped me. Proverbs 6, verses 3 and 5, and it certainly can apply in other areas of challenge, such as financial situations. Proverbs 6, verse 3. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend, Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. I've had, I confess, that I've had a problem of procrastination in the past. Um, Still tends to be there. I won't tell you to what degree I have the problem. But nonetheless... When you get into trouble and you're behind, how do you extract yourself? How do you deliver yourself? Give not sleep to your eyes. And sometimes it means working late. It means catching up on um, academic assignments. It may mean uh, trying to uh, uh, write papers or contact people or do research for financial help or spending more time in prayer, giving no sleep to your eyes. So how can you overcome the stresses of financial problems? There's the other fifth law of success. I should have tested you on that. What is the fifth law of success? Anyone know what the fifth law of success is, by the way? Thank you, Mr. Partian. I'm glad someone here knows what the fifth law of success is. Resourcefulness. Mr. Armstrong uh, spoke of it as the emergency law. What do you do when... You have, it seems, no escape or no solution to your problems. Uh, he used the example of a, a rushing water, and the rushing water comes against a rock. It can't go through the rock, but it finds a way around the rock. And there are many resources that are available to our people, even in terms of government agencies. All you need to do is go to your telephone directory and the yellow pages, and you'll find a whole listing of governmental services Uh, Many of those agencies, if you're penniless, agencies will provide food debit cards. They used to be called food stamps. And I know of several uh, in the church who have availed themselves of that, and um, the agencies were very willing under under their circumstances to provide them with those food debit cards, and even rent subsidies, and even welfare payments. So, again, if you're in trouble, use the key of resourcefulness. You can also sell some of your possessions. There's 
the consignment store right down there on uh, near Independence that uh, you can put furniture, whatever, and of course if they sell it, then you get uh, some of your money back, and of course they take a commission on it. Um, there are garage sales, and then you can also ask for help. Your church family is here to help. Let's turn to Galatians, the sixth chapter, Galatians 6. We heard in the sermonette why we're here. We are a family, and God commands us to have a holy convocation, a meeting together. It's very important for us to know one another, and it's also important for us to help one another. He tells us in chapter 6 of Galatians, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we are to bear one another's burdens. But, of course, every man needs to prove his own work, as it says in verse 4. So Mr. Meredith writes in that same article, Are You Prepared?, the first priority would be to pay off all credit card debts and all other debts we possibly can. We should also have at least the equivalent of 60 days living expenses in case of a sudden breakdown in the banking system or a similar emergency. Also, we should gradually work out a family budget that allows us over time to set aside financial resources to carry us through a year or more in case of job loss, catastrophic health situation, etc., some of you may recall that in 1999 we were facing the Y2K crisis when computers uh, did not have in their programming the year 2000. And there were prognostications that banking systems, uh, electronic power systems would all fail because the computer could not handle the two-digit zero um, because it was only gone up to 99 and then when it hit zero, zero, everything was going to... Uh, fall apart. And of course at that time we were uh, encouraged to set aside $100 or so in $1 bills. I remember doing that. And it will be helpful uh, for all of us to have some, not that we're all misers or anything of that nature, but to have some cash, emergency cash on hand, and uh, probably in lower denominations. Mr. Crockett gave a sermon on recapture true values. He emphasized the three areas of modesty, temperance, and frugality. Again, you might review that sermon. We need to be frugal and to make sure that we are saving. Mr. Uh, Ruddleston gave an excellent uh, sermonette, was it last week? I guess it was on, again, uh, saving your festival tithe and putting aside something for the Holy Day offerings. Let's go to Proverbs, the sixth chapter, Proverbs 6. Again, I think we already read uh, part of this. We read verses 3 through 5. But, uh, you know, when you think about that little ant, we used to have an ant farm in the hallway of Ambassador Library in Pasadena, California, and it was uh, two planes of gas, two, two panes of glass, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> two planes panes of glass with the uh, sand, and then you can see all the ants actually going down into their little nest, and they were just busy taking a grain of the sand at a time. And it's so instructive. God knows what he's saying when he says 
here in uh, verse 6 of Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provides her meat in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? How long, when will you arise out of sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come as one that travels and your want as an armed man. So the the ant actually doesn't have someone telling the ant, well, now you move this grain of sand, and then after you move that grain of sand, you go down into the nest and you do A, B, and C. The the ant is moving one grain of sand at a time, and he moves a a mountain of of sand over a period of time. And I've thought of that in terms of my management strategies. We all have different management strategies, and I'll mention some of those a little later. But I always have probably about 20 projects or more in my to-do list every day, and I have to, again, uh, select priorities. What am I going to do? And I'm very time conscious, and I'm writing down what I'm doing when I'm doing it. But sometimes I do, I break away from that strategy, and I go to what I call free flow, FF. And I just start doing moving grains of sand, one right after another. And it seems to really work where I'm not so time obsessed. I'm busy on doing the work and every little project that I feel needs to be done. And I get a lot done in a very short period of time. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. You can survive the stress of financial troubles by applying the principles of biblical economics, frugality, and living within your means. Ask God for help and apply the fifth law of success, resourcefulness. And remember that God's people are here to help as well. Now, In 1970, Alvin Toffler challenged society in a book titled Future Shock. Uh, The first section of his book was titled The Death of Permanence. He began in Chapter 1 with these 1970 comments. Quote, In the three short decades between now and the 21st century, millions of ordinary, psychologically normal people will face an abrupt collision with the future. Citizens of the world's richest and most technically advanced nations, many of them will find it increasingly painful to keep up with the incessant demand for change which characterizes our time. For them, the future will have arrived too soon. So can you survive the stress of information overload and of intense activity? And I'm sure that many of us have found it, as Toffler stated, quote, increasingly painful to keep up with the incessant demand for change, end of quote, as he stated. So we are challenged with a complex, faster-paced civilization. And what happened to the simple life of the past? Remember, one of the mandates of Mr. Herbert Armstrong was simplify your life. That seems to be almost impossible to do, but it is possible. You can do it. How do we survive this stress of activity? Let's turn to Isaiah 58, verse 13. We already received that solution in the sermonette, and that's by keeping the Sabbath and coming to Sabbath services. Isaiah 58, God has given us a solution for the stress of activity and information overload. Verse 13 of Isaiah 58 
If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the eternal, honorable, shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then shall you delight yourself in the eternal. And I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. So God wants us to rejoice in his Sabbath. We as God's people have a built-in counter um, project, you might say, or again a solution to the stress of activity and information overload. I know sometimes when I leave the office and come home, and it may be about uh, this time, of course, Sabbath is about 6.35, sunset is about 6.35 now, and uh, I will just crash. I'll just come home and lie on the couch, and I'll just crash. That is meaning I go to sleep, and I enjoy that. It is a pleasure for God's Sabbath to be able to just let go of the stresses of the week. We have the privilege of that gift that God has given us of his Sabbath. But God does want us to be profitable servants, and we have to, again, make sure that we're maintaining our uh, responsibilities, keeping our responsibilities. I won't turn there, but I've given a sermon uh, titled Christian Responsibilities, uh, number 63. Dr. Douglas Winnale gave a sermon, Our Responsibilities, number 395. And if you read Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9, it gives us our responsibilities. Children, obey your parents. Parents, uh, bring your children up in the admonition of the Lord. Uh, Servants, uh, serve your masters with not with eye service, but as serving Christ. And then, masters, be careful how you treat your servants. And, of course, our modern application is supervisors, employees. But we need to keep our responsibilities. How do we counteract that stress? Well, we keep the Sabbath, we keep our responsibilities, and we also keep our priorities or make sure we commit to our priorities. And you all know that scripture, but let's turn to Matthew 6. Because here Jesus is challenging his audience about their anxious thought for what they eat and what they drink. And he says, which of you, by taking any anxious thought, can add one cubit under your stature? You, you're anxious that you're, you're not six feet four inches tall. Uh, you, you can't actually add any more to your stature just by taking anxious thought. He says, consider the lilies of the field in verse 28. And then he says, uh, tells them that they are of little faith. Verse 30, oh, you of little faith. Could that apply to some of us? Verse 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. God knows what you need. And so why should we ask? Some people say, well, because God wants you to rely on him and to have a close relationship with him. Verse 33, but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So we know that our priorities, and I hope that everyone in here, if not everyone, at least most all of us, have committed ourselves to that 
life priority. It is our goal to seek first the kingdom of God. Not marriage, not possessions, not pleasure, but the kingdom of God. That is our priority. That is our goal. I remember one uh, critic was saying, oh, but that's not really a goal because a goal has to have a time limit to it, a deadline. Uh, well, does this have a deadline? Sure does, because <laughs> you're going to die someday, and you better keep seeking the kingdom of God until you die. <clears throat> Verse 34, But take no anxious thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, this is not saying you don't have vision. This is not saying, as we read in Proverbs, that you foresee the evil to come and you prepare for it. This is saying you don't worry and ang- uh, what uh, have angst and anxiety over tomorrow. You need to focus on what you need to get done today. There's a, uh, some of you know this book, you've probably seen it, by Richard Carlson, Ph.D. Uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And then he says, it's all small stuff. Well, it's not all small stuff, uh, but nonetheless, he has some uh, good points here. Uh, Page 45, ask yourself the question, will this matter a year from now? Almost every day I play a game with myself that I call time warp. I made it up in response to my consistent erroneous belief that what I was all worked up about was really important. So we have to ask that question. Will it matter one year from now? And this other principle, (coughs) excuse me, I know that uh, there's the balance of multitasking. We have mothers who multitask. They're changing diapers the same time they're on the telephone and uh, preparing food and doing many other things. Uh, This particular principle by Dr. Carlson is do one thing at a time, page 151. The other day I was driving on the freeway, he writes, and noticed a man who, while driving in the fast lane, was shaving, drinking a cup of coffee, and reading the newspaper. Perfect, I thought to myself, as just that morning I was trying to think of an appropriate example to point out the craziness of our frenzied society. How often do we try to do more than one thing at once? Well, that's something that you have to answer in in your own life. Can you focus on a major project and work on it. And uh, I know whether it's preparing a sermon or preparing for a telecast or other writings, once I'm focused on it, then I, I can put away all the other distractions, and I'm sure Dr. Winnell experiences that too, that once you're focused on a project, you say, look, I know I would really like to be watching television. I really would like to be exercising. I really would like to... Uh, be talking with someone on the phone. But once you make the commitment to focus on a project and you pray about it, God can give you the focus and then you can make good progress. So do one thing at a time is uh, his advice in that particular uh, book. There are many others, too, that are very helpful. The other night I was uh, just channel surfing and uh, found uh, the... uh, old movie, uh, just ending at the time, uh, Yours, Mine, and Ours. That was a 1968 movie with Lucille Ball, Henry Fonda, and Van Johnson. And I'll just read you this plot from someone who wrote in on the Internet. 
When a widower of ten children marries a widow with eight, excuse me, can, can the twenty of them ever come together as one big happy family? From finding a house big enough for all of them and learning to make 18 school lunches to coping with a son going off to war and an unexpected addition to the family, yours, mine, and ours attempts to blend two families into one and hopes to answer the question, is bigger really better? And uh, I remember seeing that movie years ago. And when you have this kind of stress, can you imagine as parents... Taking care of 18 children, how do you do that? I just barely remember one scene in which the children were helping, kind of an assembly line fashion. One child was putting out the bread, and the other child was coming along putting on the peanut butter, and the other child was coming along doing the jelly. They had an assembly line routine. They had a teamwork. So how do you face the stress that you think, would, in this case, would be overwhelming? Part of the answer is teamwork. You get others to help in the project and getting the work done, and that's what we're doing here at headquarters. We're working, striving to work as a team. And so in your location, in your situation, if you have stresses, you have problems, do you have uh, 18 school lunches you have to prepare for? Uh, if you don't, then maybe you can find some other help, uh, some other uh, resource that will help you to solve your problem. And sometimes we face crises, and uh, I know I'm still learning. Uh, we have crises of uh, being late uh, at times. But uh, how do you solve crises? Peter Drucker, the effective executive, which, uh, of course, he, is, he died at age 95 here uh, a year or two ago, and uh, very well known as a consultant. This is what he says on page 41 about crises. And you've got crises in your family. Do you have repeated crises? Here's what he says. Quote, a crisis that recurs a second time is a crisis that must not occur again. Of course, he's talking in an industrial context. A recurrent crisis should always have been foreseen. It can therefore either be prevented or reduced to a routine which clerks can manage. The definition of a routine is that it makes unskilled people without judgment capable of doing what it took nearly genius to do before. For a routine puts down a systematic step-by-step -step form what a very able man learned in surmounting yesterday's crisis. The recurrent crisis is not confined to the lower levels of organization. It afflicts everyone. And then he says on the next page, if you have recurrent crises, the recurrent crisis is simply a symptom of slovenliness and laziness. So, again, if we have crises, can we, again, find a routine, find a system to prevent a recurrent crisis? There's another book that was very helpful to me many years ago and still helpful in terms of committing myself to a priority project. It's from the book uh, Alex McKenzie, R. Alec McKenzie, 1972 book, The Time Trap. And it's a famous story, but it's a very important story. Uh, pages 41 and 42. When Charles Schwab was president of Bethlehem Steel, he confronted Mr. Ivy Lee, a management consultant, with an unusual challenge. 
He said to the consultant, show me a way to get more things done, he demanded. If it works, I'll pay you anything within reason. The consultant, Ivy Lee, handed Schwab a piece of paper. Write down the things you have to do tomorrow. When Schwab committed, uh, completed the list, Lee said, now number those items in the order of their real importance. Schwab did, and Lee said, the first thing tomorrow morning, start working on number one. Stay with it until it's completed. Then take number two, and don't go any further until it's finished or until you've done as much as you can. Then proceed to number three, and so on. If you can't complete everything on schedule, don't worry. At least you will have taken care of the most important things before getting distracted by items of less importance. And again, I found this to be very helpful. I know I've got deadlines with lectures for Living University, writing a booklet, preparing scripts for telecast, preparing the sermon. Um, no, what do you do? What, what project do you work on? Uh, for procrastinators, and this is an aside, for procrastinators, let me give you another uh, strategy, and I call it the five-minute rule. If there's something that you know you need to be working on, but you are procrastinating, you can't get to it, apply the five-minute rule. Just work five minutes on it, and that will assuage your guilt, and at least you will have been broken, breaking the barrier. And I found that sometimes after I apply the five-minute rule, I'm actually working on it for an hour and get the whole project done. But that's just an aside. Back to uh, Ivy Lee's story. The secret, he said to... Uh, uh, Schwab, do this daily. Evaluate the relative importance of the things you have to get done. Establish priorities. Record your plan of action and stick to it. Do this every working day. After you've convinced yourself that this system has value, have your people try it. Test, as long, test it as long as you like, and then send me a check for whatever you think the idea is worth. A few weeks later, Schwab mailed Lee a check for $25,000 just for that advice. I've just given it to you for free. <laughs> he later said this was the most profitable lesson he'd learned in his entire business career. So in summary, for this point, you can survive the stress of activity information overload. Pray for God's guidance. Analyze your major responsibilities. Choose the most important project and concentrate on that project. Remember Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The next area is on frustration, fear, worries, and anxieties. We can title this subsection, Face Your Fears. Let's turn to Job, the third chapter. Job, the third chapter. Job suffered. He lost everything. Um, lost his home, lost uh, children, and yet uh, he survived that tragedy. Of course, he had a great spiritual lesson to learn in the meantime. So <clears throat> Job in, is complaining here in verse uh, 25 of Job 3, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which was I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. 
We would call this today a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some of you may have fears. You have phobias. You have worries. You're worrying, you know, I just got this premonition something is going to happen. What do you do with that premonition? What do you do with that worry? What do you do with that fear? You better face that fear is what you better do and take it to God in prayer. Let's turn to Philippians 4 and uh, verse 6. Of course, we had that in uh, Mr. Charles O'Gwen's excellent sermon last week on patience that we must endure and apply enduring patience. Philippians, the fourth chapter. And again, this is a common scripture we've read in services often. But be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. So if you've got a fear, a phobia, a premonition, you better face that fear and take it to God. Say, well, Father, I, I, I fear that there's going to be an accident on the corner of Monroe and Sardis, and uh, I don't think I ought to go there. Well, you pray about it. You ask God for protection, and you're extra alert for anything like that. So you take it to God with thanksgiving, as he says. Now, let me just throw in another little quote here. It's uh, one of these little booklets called Bits and Pieces uh, by Edward W. Zegler. Quote, It's a good rule to face difficulties at the time they arise and not allow them to increase unacknowledged. Let me read that again. It's a good rule to face difficulties at the time they arise and not allow them to increase unacknowledged. I know one time I had this little ping in my car, you know, click, 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 and ah, I won't pay attention to it. No, I should have paid attention to it. And I should have taken it to, uh, had it analyzed and taken it to uh, the car repair place and had it analyzed because it cost me that much more in the end when I didn't solve the minor problem before it became a big problem. But we need to face our problems. Do we confront our worries and our concerns and, and fears? As I pointed out in uh, the Tomorrow's World article, I believe it was by the same title, uh, Face Your Fears, uh, pray about everything that worries you. It's a principle. I try to do that, and I hope that you do too. You pray about everything that worries you. And, of course, that's the principle here in Philippians 4 and verse 6. And the result of that, if we do it with thanksgiving, because when you're doing it with thanksgiving, you're saying in, e in essence that you believe God is going to hear your prayer and he's going to do something about it. Then, verse 7, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Yes, we are facing all kinds of stresses in this day and age, and if we have thanksgiving and we have a positive mind, then we can face our fears, and God will help us through. He'll give us the uh, solutions to our problems. Let's turn to 1 Peter, the uh, fifth chapter. 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> when I asked my wife this morning, it was one scripture she mentioned on how can we survive stress. She mentioned this one. First Peter, the fifth chapter, and verse 12. 
Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Or as the NIV has it, cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. God wants you to come to him. It's that relationship that will help you through the stresses and the trials and the tests that come our way. This uh, is a helpful book that I had years ago. It's, uh, let's see what year, I think it's back in the 1960s. How to Live 365 Days a Year by Schindler. I believe it is uh, L-I-V, so that would be 54. 1954. And uh, How to Live 365 Days a Year by uh, John A. Schindler, M.D. And this is what he says on page 70. He was the one that actually introduced the expression EII, emotionally induced illness. That some of us have illnesses not because of bacteria or other uh, accidents, but because of emotional stress. This is what he writes on page 70. It has only been recently that psychologists have come to understand and to be able to state just what maturity consists of. Maturity is just what it sounds like, the ability to react to life situations in ways that are more beneficial than ways in which a child would react. Emotional stasis is exactly the same thing. Emotional stress is what a child produces when faced with a menacing situation. A mature person has emotional stasis in the same situations. Well, I'll go back to uh, the page 68, and this is what he says about uh, emotional stasis. Uh, talks about uh, various patients that he experienced that should have been mature but uh, were very uh, emotionally immature. These patients have never learned the art of emotional stasis. They meet living with emotional stress. Emotional stasis is the ability to meet a wide variety of life situations, the bad with the good, with emotions like equanimity, resignation, courage, determination, cheerfulness, and pleasantness. The person who lacks emotional stasis meets most of his situations, good with bad, with emotions like anxiety, fear, apprehension, discouragement, disappointment, and frustration, that he meets the good uh, with, that is, uh, emotional stasis when he's meeting those kinds of attitudes. So we need to be emotionally mature, and of course one other major point he brings out in there is that those who are mature are ones who are giving. That's Acts 20, verse 35. He didn't mention that, but that's uh, the particular case. Let's turn to 1 John 4 and uh, verse 18. So we can cast all our cares upon God, and we need to meet the varying stresses and challenges with equanimity, with courage, uh, with faith. 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love. So how many of us have fear? Uh, That is the wrong kind of fear. A godly fear is an appropriate reverence for God and who and what He is. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. I remember one uh, one example that I had borrowed a book 
from someone, and uh, it was a long, long time. And uh, somehow it re- I was reminded that I owed the person the book, and I said, why didn't you uh, ask me to return the book? And uh, uh, the person just kind of waffled, and I said, well, do you love me? I mean, if you love me, you wouldn't have the fear to ask me to return the book. So, again, perfect love casts out fear, and it applies in so many different areas of relationships and, of course, in overcoming the anxieties that we have as well. So face your fears. Pray about everything that worries you. Seek options and alternatives to solve your problems. Do your part, and God will do his. Another area of stress is that, I've already mentioned it in part, is the matter of time obsession. This book uh, was written back in the 70s, I believe it was, Type A Behavior and Your Heart. In other words, this book, the book for everyone who hopes to avoid heart attack, uh, how and why type A behavior leads to heart disease. Type A behavior, he writes on page 84, is an action-emotion complex that can be observed in any person who is aggressively involved in a chronic, incessant struggle to achieve more and more in less and less time, and if required to do so against the opposing efforts of other things or other persons. Now, that described me many years ago, and thankfully I'm no longer type A, and this may, some of you may be type A personalities, where you just have to drive, drive, drive. Now, drive is good. I have to qualify that. But it's the obsession of time that you've got to get all these things done. And that kind of stress can produce heart disease. Type B personality behavior pattern is the exact opposite of type A subject. Uh, he, these are Friedman and Rosenman, uh, MDs. He, unlike the type A person, is rarely harried by desires to obtain a wildly increasing number of things or participate in an endlessly growing series of events in an ever-decreasing amount of time. His intelligence may be as good or even better than that of type A subject. Similarly, his ambition may be as great or even greater than that of his type A counterpart. He may also have a considerable amount of drive, but its character is such that it seems to steady him, give confidence and security to him, rather than to goad, irritate, and infuriate as with a type A man. So I hope that all of us can be that type A, that is, that we are able to produce, but at the same time we are able to maintain an emotional stasis. We are able to have a calm and spiritual peace of mind at the same time being productive. I know one time I caught myself rushing. I was late to a spokesman club, and uh, I, this poem just came to my mind. Uh, was, uh, haste makes waste. Slow the pace and win the race. And I, I still tell that to myself every once in a while, because I'm rushing, I'm rushing, and I'm rushing, and I'm late. I know that uh, even more recently when uh, we were in uh, Morristown, New Jersey, for the Sabbath after the feast, and uh, the next day we were going from New Jersey up to New York. And I'd seen this brochure advertising a cruise around Manhattan, 
and it was going to be, I estimated, an hour and a half drive from um, Bridgewater, New Jersey, where we had the hotel up to Weehawken, New Jersey, and uh, to get this uh, the cruise ship. And the directions were a little difficult, and I started to stress about it. And I thought, oh, are we going to make it? We have to be there by noon. It's uh, a cruise from, no, we're supposed to be there 1130 because the cruise is from noon to 2. And on the way, I began to realize, what am I stressing about? If I don't make it in time, what big damage is that? I mean, God's will be done. If I get there in time, I'll enjoy the cruise. If I don't get there in time, God will find something else for us to do. And that very lesson, I've learned that lesson many times, God's will be done. And if you can surrender to God's will when you are stressed, you will have a peace of mind. I had a peace of mind from that. We had difficulty finding the cruise ship, finally found it, and enjoyed a two-hour cruise around Manhattan, seeing um, the Statue of Liberty and seeing the uh, uh, Manhattan Island. And, and later on, we were able to take another ferry across to uh, Manhattan and uh, walk by Carnegie Hall and just by coincidence and saw a concert. So when you surrender to God's will, Luke, the 22nd chapter, and you know that well, but it's so important for us to counteract stress, to survive stress, and to turn stress into success. Luke, the 24th chapter, and verse 41. It was the night before Jesus was crucified, and you know, he was in agony at that time. But he prayed, verse 41, kneeled down and prayed, verse 42, Luke 22, saying, Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. So I hope, brethren, that every one of us has that attitude, that whatever circumstance we're in, whether we're stressed, whether we are in a trial, that we ask God to deliver us, but we ask God to that his will be done. In this case, God did not remove the cup from Jesus, but he gave an angel there to strengthen him. And so if God says, look, no, you're going to have to go through this trial, God can still give you the strength and the spiritual courage to endure that trial. And of course, as we heard in the sermon last week on patience, that uh, James' uh, first chapter says, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete or entire. That's in uh, James, the first chapter. So we need to be able to fulfill uh, God's will and to humble ourselves before God's God and do his will. Let's turn to Acts, the 21st chapter, Acts 21. And part of the peace of mind we, we have comes from that fundamental commitment we made at baptism, but carries on through our life. Acts 21. Here, a prophet came down to uh, see Paul. Acts 21, verse 10. As we tarried there, Luke writes, many days there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, and bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. So what was Paul's response? Paul answered, verse 13, What what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, The will of the Lord be done. So I hope that all of us have made even that kind of a commitment. The Apostle Paul was saying, look, I'm just not willing to suffer or to be in prison. I am willing to die. We made that commitment at baptism, every one of us that uh, were baptized, because we said that we are to love Christ more than we love any human being and more than we love our own bodies and our own self as well. So we need to be conquered by God. We need to be totally surrendered to God. Uh, Mr. Meredith has used the expression, are we conquered by God? He mentions that in the booklet, The uh, True Christianity. What is a true Christian? I'll just quote a sentence here. So although doing good works is an integral part of Christianity, there is much more. Yes, we certainly do need to work on developing gentleness, kindness, and service to others. But we must also, in a very real sense, be conquered by God, realizing that our own righteousness is simply not good enough. Isaiah 64.6, Romans 3.23. We must be totally surrendered to do God's will in every phase and facet of our lives. So in summary of this particular section, strive to be a type B personality. Commit yourself to do God's will. Surrender to do God's will. At the same time, try to redeem the time, as it tells us in Ephesians, and strive to do all things decently and in order. The next section is just a reiteration of what we read earlier, but let's go back to Philippians 4 and verse 6. And this point is maintain a positive and tranquil mind. If you're going to survive stress, You need to maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Again, be anxious for nothing. He tells us in Philippians 4, 6. But we face our fears and anxieties with prayer, prayer with thanksgiving. And then what do we think about as positive-mindedness? Verse 8, Mr. Repartian's favorite scripture, or one of them. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true or noble... Whatsoever things are honest or noble, whatsoever things are just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be virtue, if there be praise, something praiseworthy, think on these things. So we are to think of those things that are true and lovely. I always, sometimes at night when I'm having trouble going to sleep, I'll try to think of the most beautiful scenes that I've seen in the world, the uh, on uh, Hanalei Plantation in Hawaii, where my wife and I uh, stayed after the feast in 1968, a long time ago. Anyway, a, a rainbow coming, beautiful rainbow coming up out of the bay below us. And then in Zermatt, Switzerland, opening my eyes to see my dream of the Matterhorn Mountain. I was just in bed and just opened my eyes that morning, and I didn't even move my head and up on the wall was an open window with the Matterhorn Mountain, that big crag of a rock just sticking up there with, with the snow on it and the sun just beaming on it. And it's just 
one of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen without even moving my head uh, in the morning. That was one of God's blessings. You think on those things that are lovely, the things that you've seen that are beautiful. Um, then he says down in verse 11 here of Philippians 4, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You know, Mr. Meredith years ago gave the seven laws of radiant health. They were, number one, eat a proper diet. Two, learn to exercise regularly and when possible, vigorously. Three, get the proper amount of sleep and rest. Four, ensure that you are getting enough sunshine and fresh air. Five, practice cleanliness and wear proper clothing. Six, avoid bodily injury. Number seven, maintain a positive mind. So Paul goes on to say, he must have maintained a positive mind. I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, brethren, maintain a positive and a tranquil mind. And, of course, in the earlier part of Philippians, the Apostle Paul talks about rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's Philippians 4.4. 4. He had that positive attitude. So when you face trials, keep your eyes on God's throne. Remember His promises. Remember that it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except as such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So look to Christ and always maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Let's turn to uh, Proverbs 3 and verse 5, one of my favorite verses, Proverbs Three and verse five. I know Mr. Meredith, in his earlier edition of Seven Laws of Radiant Health, had uh, maintain a tranquil mind, and then later realized that it needs to be more than just tranquil. It needs to be positive. So he changed it to maintain a positive mind. And I always tell myself, maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Proverbs three and verse five. Again, one of my favorite scriptures. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So we trust in God and we acknowledge God. We pray about everything that worries about us. We pray about our plans. We pray about our problems. And we trust that God is going to give us the solution. You know, on our U.S. currency, it displays, In God We Trust. And God We Trust was actually made an official motto of the United States by a joint resolution of Congress approved by President Dwight Eisenhower on July 30th, 1956. So it is in law. So if anyone says, any of the liberals say, well, no, it's, it's, not, uh, it's against the Constitution, Congress passed it as a law. It is the official motto of the United States, In God We Trust. It's also a Florida state motto, and in Spanish, it's the motto of Nicaragua. And the phrase first appeared on a United States coin in 1864, a two-cent piece, but was not used on paper money until 1957. So while the nation doesn't trust in God, we must trust in God, and he will direct our paths. Turn to one final scripture, again, another 
one of my more recent favorite scriptures, 2 Corinthians, the uh, second chapter, 2 Corinthians, second chapter. We can let stress harm our bodies and minds, or we can turn stress into success and triumph. In fact, there is good stress that helps us to produce and to get things done. But here in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, it tells us, Now thanks be to God, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So we can have the victory, we can have the successes, we can overcome the challenge of stress and natural disasters and other problems and other trials. Always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us, actually through the ministry, He's here, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So God is, through God's people, through the ministry, through the work, uh, diffusing the fragrance, the beautiful scent of his knowledge in every place. So God has given us the power to triumph over evil, over temptation and stress. And we can, with God's help, overcome our financial problems, our emotional problems, our fears, our phobias, and our anxieties. We can face natural and man-made disasters with faith and preparation. We can cope with the stress and the burden of intense activities and information overload when we choose the most important priorities. God has given us the power and the love to conquer stress. He's given us a great mission to prepare the world, the church, and ourselves for the kingdom of God. So let's be about our Father's business let God's Word instruct us and follow that instruction to seek Him and to seek His kingdom first. When we give God our time, then He gives us peace of mind and extra time. So let's face our fears. Let's prepare to meet the challenges. May we not only survive stress, but let us turn stress into godly success and triumph in Christ.